I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. And I'm speaking today with Killian No for the Real Change podcast series. Killian is the founding director of Recovery Cafe, providing a beautiful, safe, warm, drug and alcohol free space and a loving community to anchor members in the sustained recovery needed to gain and maintain access to housing, social and health services, healthy relationships, education, and employment. Can't remember the year I visited. Recovery Cafe um, in Seattle, but I just, uh, I was so moved by being there. Before starting Recovery Cafe in 2004 with Ruby Takushi, 
Killian co-founded Samaritan Inns, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., which provides transitional and longer-term drug and alcohol-free community-oriented housing for individuals recovering from homelessness, addiction, and other mental health challenges. She has written about Samaritan Inns and Finding Our Way Home and about Recovery Cafe in Descent into Love. Killian is passionate about authentic community and its power to transform. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Killian. Thank you so much, Sharon. I have such fond memories of your visit and of your kind presence. That's what I remember. Thank you so much. I mean, I I, I was really, uh, I was very moved by being there. I wished that for the moment that I lived in Seattle so that I could actually have a longer term relationship um, with the place. So uh, this recording is part of a larger series of conversations on the Meta Hour, which are centered around the themes in my book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And, uh, you know, I've long held the question for myself, what's the role of mindfulness and loving kindness, or one might say love, in changing the world? And the book, the book in many ways is the culmination of that question. So um, I look to activists and social change agents and a variety of fields, such as yourself. And so um, I find your your work very, very inspiring. Um, to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to your path? Sure. Um, I, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. My dad was a pastor. I experienced being part of a, a very loving community. Um, but I, I also experienced a lot of, of um, clear answers to questions in that community. And, and I found myself drawn to mystery and paradox and and so I um when I went away to college I I uh, once again found myself drawn to um a, an African American church and to the sermons the themes on exile and speaking truth to power uh those themes awakened a, a sense of urgency in me. And immediately after I graduated from college, I, I volunteered to uh, work in the Middle East. And, and, and once again, I found myself drawn to um, not only individuals who were, who were different from the, the, small community I grew up in in the mountains of North Carolina, but I, I, I found myself drawn to learning about the faith experiences of, of uh, people, people from, from different religions. And eventually, three years after uh, time in the Middle East, I ended up back in Washington, D.C., and I was a part of a faith community there 
that was committed to the path of contemplation and action as being two sides of the same coin. We talked about it as the inward and the outward journey. And um, I guess what we what we um, practiced most in that community was that if we take seriously this inward journey, which you've given your life to, then we will also be able to discover some place in the world to offer our gifts some place of suffering and need in the world and that those two things are two sides of the same coin. That's very beautiful. You started um, the Recovery Cafe in 1999 and since then it has grown um, to have 22 cafes in 11 states, the District of Columbia and Canada. So that's a real testament to the model you've implemented, which is referred to by the larger behavioral health community as a recovery-orientated system of care, ROSC. Can you explain what that is? Well, I would say that that what is unique about our recovery cafe community is we are um, a membership organization. People choose to be part of the community and and they commit to three practices as members of the community. They commit to, to being um, drug and alcohol free for at least 24 hours before entering the space as a way of honoring the journey that that everyone is on and in the community and 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 that honoring that people have different needs for um refuge and and the and the second practice or commitment is that everyone will be a contributor you know in in a lot of really awesome social service agencies people come to the to the agency to receive services and of course that's thank goodness that those agencies are there to offer those services but but in this recovery cafe community people come not just to receive services but but to offer support to others. So they come to contribute, not just to receive, but to contribute. So the second uh, commitment is that all members will be contributors to the healing of others. And uh, and literally just to running the cafe. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to uh, putting out to really nutritious meals a day. And so everyone, you know, commits to helping with the physical work as well. And then and then the um, third commitment that everyone makes, all members make, is to per- 
participate in this small, loving accountability group. It, it really becomes uh, our spiritual family. You know, we, we, what we talk a lot about is that all of us have a deep need to be uh, both known and loved. And um, a lot of us maybe uh, were known by people growing up who didn't uh, partic- weren't, weren't particularly skilled at loving us. And, uh, and so to be known without being loved is a terrifying thing. Or, or maybe we've been loved by people who didn't truly know us. And, and that experience is, is a somewhat superficial thing. But in these recovery circles, we, we really value being both deeply known and deeply loved by the same core group of people. And we find that there is something very powerful in healing about those two things going together. So is that a recovery-orientated system of care? Uh, I would say that uh, we don't we don't fit perfectly into any category. <laughs> That's good, too. That's probably better. <laughs> so I would say some people in the in the larger um, recovery world, recovery. When I say recovery, I mean recovery from mental health and and uh, substance use. A lot of people in uh, professionals in that world have called us um, called us that. But I would say that we really don't fit in any uh, particular category that well. Um, and, and another reason why we don't, Sharon, is we don't fit very well in uh, any category is that we emphasize how all of us are in recovery from many things. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, whereas in, in, you know, insurance companies would like to, to keep, put you in little boxes so they know how to, you know, be reimbursed uh, for services, but, but we actually try not to fit into little boxes and, and we try to, to um, remind all of us, all of us who are members of this community that, that this journey we're, we're on is a, a, a journey of recovery from so many things and that the, the more we, uncover, the more we recover, the deeper we go, the more we discover the need um, for uh, recovery from something else that maybe Mm -hmm. we didn't realize we needed recovery from. Well, I love every element of what you described and starting with contributing, you know, and not only receiving. I mean, it's very difficult to receive too. It's its own practice, really. But I think something else happens when it feels more reciprocal or or uh, more mutual. Like I can remember a friend 
of mine who was um, in a psychiatric hospital for a long, long, long stay, kind of unusual in this day and age. Um, and when he got out uh, and was to some extent resuming his life and to some extent remaking his life, uh, one of the things that he did was he volunteered in this um, kind of like a soup kitchen and he was taking a lot of psychotropic medications, hands were shaking and first they had him cutting sandwiches and then they thought, well, this is dangerous, you know, so then they had him wrapping sandwiches and he got such immense satisfaction out of doing that. You know, the food was going to some homebound people who were ill and um, he wasn't uh, enjoying his previous level of stature and, you know, whatever. And it actually didn't matter because it was such a, a pure sense of even in what seems to be a small way, making a difference. And if we don't, any of us do those small things, seemingly small things, nothing's going to happen. I totally, totally uh, agree. We, we, your story, beautiful story, reminds me of a, one of our members um, who has now, he now has years, uh, years of, of uh, really deep recovery. But he, he likes to remind us of the very first day he walked into Recovery Cafe and he said, he said, you didn't even wait till day two before handing me a broom and telling me <laughs> to sweep the kitchen. And he said, he said, actually, even though I was a little surprised, he said, it was the first time that I felt a, a some sense of worth in mm -hmm. as long as I could remember having done that job it was the first so it, it it we all really we all want to be contributors and and of course one of the things that happens at recovery cafe is as people um attain some stability in their in their mental health in their uh, recovery from uh substance use disorder we um, people discover that they have so many other gifts, so many other ways of contributing, ways that they never imagined before. Um, I, I, one of my favorite stories is a, a, a woman who um, had s suffered from hearing voices for most of her adult life and and we have a very strong yoga program at recovery cafe and so she she began taking yoga classes and she realized that the yoga classes helped steal the voices and and as she um healed and became a uh, a uh, her um, recovery attained some stability. Um, the the yoga instructor offered to put her through a course of becoming a yoga teacher herself. Uh -huh. 
It was amazing. And, and, and of course, that is one of the programs he's, he has since taken many of our members through that, uh, that instruction of becoming yoga teachers. But, but when she uh, completed that course work and was a certified yoga instructor, guess what she ended up doing? Teaching at Recovery Cafe? Well, a lot of our uh, uh, members who have gone through that coursework um, do teach at Recovery Cafe. But she ended up teaching at a local psychiatric clinic, mm. a, a yoga class for individuals who suffered from hearing voices. That's fantastic. Yeah, so we it, the idea that that um, we we all have gifts to share, and that and that sometimes what we offer, the gift that we offer, and that brings us so much joy in offering, is is somehow related to our own our own struggle. Hmm. It's the most authentic teaching there is, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm glad you said that about the yoga class because I was going to ask you if that recovery group is the only required kind of activity, what else happens there that's optional or, or is available for people? Oh, yeah, good question. Uh, well, we have um, school for recovery, and in the school there is a, a wide variety of classes and there are classes like the yoga classes, there writing classes, art classes, even uh, theater and singing and and um, and meditation and classes that are are, are more practical, like uh, resume writing and mm-hmm. budgeting and uh, nutrition, and so there are many many classes that people um, can take advantage of as they continue to grow and, and, um, and then become um, teachers in some of those classes, our co, co-teachers in, in, in some of our cafes. In one of our cafes in uh, San Jose, California, every class is co-facilitated by a member of of the cafe. I think that's a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. I mean, in a way, you know, society and probably families and, and one's own mind, you know, all weave a story about who we are mm-hmm. and who we might yet become. And and you're telling a different story, you know. Uh, to quote John Kabat-Zinn, who said, you know, if you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you. I love that. <laughs> you know, so even in a life that, in a way, has fallen apart, or you know, there've been a lot of consequences uh, from drinking or drug use, there's still that sense of potential, capacity, possibility that can be very alive. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So is it is it all closed down now? In the um, well. 
from the uh, kind of upsurge in the pandemic, um, did the cafe close? We we have for a period of time we had to close the part of our work which is the hanging out together in in a cafe setting and that's a very important part of our work and we did have to close that down and in, in um you know uh, just to to uh pr- to keep people safe but um uh, what that what that allowed us to do was in dream of new ways to connect with with our members and new ways to love our members so uh now we are um welcoming people back into the cafe observing the social distancing rules and the wearing of masks and so we're we're having um recovery circles again inside the building but for a period of time what we uh what we learned how to do by nece- by necessity uh is connect with people through what we're we're now calling teleconnection and and that is through phone calls we 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 uh, purchased phones and and were able to give phones to all of our members who didn't have a way of connecting via phone and we were able to teach people how to use zoom recovery uh, zoom circles or zoom um platform for recovery circles Mm-hmm. and that was pretty amazing and and we have two cafes in Seattle one of the buildings our largest building in Seattle we turned over completely for a time and it's still in the hands of of our county king county we turned it over to be used as an enhanced shelter Mm-hmm. for people most at risk of of dying of of the virus. So that continues to be uh, that building continues to be used in a new way. And and as we uh it, we've learned so much about teleconnection and connecting over Zoom circles and through the the uh phone calling that we that will continue long after the virus has passed because it it actually enhances our our ability to connect with our members and with each other that's really fantastic and it's fantastic that you provided the phones i remember a conversation i had i did a um program um for this organization once and kind of stress reduction meditation tips you know and um, they felt that this was quite some years ago too, and they felt that people would not uh, necessarily, and the people they were working with, who were like you know farm workers in California, and then domestic um, workers, you know, home health aides and people like that, um, they felt like people were not going to all have smartphones, you know, and so the whole delivery was over text of of these uh, very short, but several guided meditations. And 
Um, other people may have disagreed, and I don't know how the tech thing will actually evolve, but uh, it's kind of inspiring to me to, to see that people are finding a way. Yes, it, it, it's been uh, challenging, and and yet it has been gratifying to 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 find new ways. Like, for example, we served two meals a day before COVID. Now we serve two takeout meals a day mm-hmm. um, because of uh, not being able to gather in the same way. And uh, and not being able to gather safely, so innovation it, it it's been uh, it's been necessary. Hmm. I mean, I remember when uh, before masks were certainly before they were mandated in a lot of places, and before they were even uh, highly recommended. I watched. I'm here in Barry, Massachusetts. I don't go anywhere. Um, you know, and I watch this whole industry of of mask makers arise. Yeah. I, started buying, I started buying a lot of masks online, both it was something to buy. But I just had so much admiration. You know, you can get a mask that says, be mindful, or you can get a mask that says, be kind to everyone. Or you can get, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, and I thought, well, there's some resilient spirit, you know, like it just arose. Yeah. So how do you strike a balance in your own life? I mean, I I remember just the, the day I was there in the recovery cafe, how poignant it was, and one of your members had died and um, dealing with sort of the grief of everybody and, and your own and uh, also the beauty which is in in these people which may be so overlooked by most people and, and there you are witnessing it and... Um, how do you find some balance? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. It, it's been harder during this COVID-19 period to, um, to find that balance. I personally, I, I, I'm spending a lot more time on these zoom calls and something about I'm grateful for Zoom. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for all these uh, ways of connecting, but it it um, it doesn't feed me the way being face to face with someone does. And so the it I, I have found that it um, it exhausts me in a in a different way. Um, and so uh, one way that I, you know, have for years uh, sought to stay grounded and, and to have some, some balance is through a, a, my, my centering prayer, my contemplative practice. Mm-hmm. So that daily practices, I'm finding it's always been important but I, I'm finding it's more important than ever. And then I, I, th- I find that movement, for me, physical movement is really important. I'm grateful that I can um, walk and, and I do. I, I get out and I walk 
you know, a lot every day. Um, something about the movement really helps me stay grounded. I I also find that being in a, a recovery circle myself, where I am both deeply known and loved, is uh, very grounding and helps me stay balanced. And and I and I also um, I think I guess this gets a little bit into the subject of boundaries, but I, I also think it's really important to to remember that that no one person is um, is needed by everybody that mm-hmm. you know we we often say at recovery cafe everyone is deeply known but not everyone is deeply known by everybody but mm-hmm. everyone is deeply known by somebody or or a yes, this small group of people so it's it helps me um stay balanced to remember that everyone has a small group where they are being carried. I don't need to carry everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not only true, it's it's very true that I don't need to carry everybody, but it's also, um, it's, it's um, what, even if uh, there's that temptation to think, oh, well, this particular person really needs me and only me. Uh, I, I even find that that's not, that's often not the case because if I need to pull back a little bit, I find that it creates some space for someone else to lean in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is community. Community is what helps me stay balanced uh, because it's uh, there's it doesn't community does not depend on one individual it, it depends on many individuals leaning in that's a really beautiful and, and sort of different um, response like a lot of people would say and do say uh I couldn't stand just the stimulation of, of the community anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like altogether too much. And, and, uh, and it's quite beautiful to think of um, that's the reassurance. That's actually the safety measure that it's not just up to me. And we can allow ourselves to get a break or get some rest or, um, just enjoy something. I mean, that the, I have this part of my book about an activist friend of mine who um, was, I mean, he was brilliant. He was one of the first people doing that kind of work I'd ever met. And um, and he was also phenomenally depressed. It's uh. not the same person. It's a different person than I was talking about before. And um, I don't know. It's such a complex topic, but there was also a part of him that didn't feel it was okay to enjoy anything mm. and that uh, he, you know, there was too much pain in the world. He sort of didn't deserve, you know, the, right. uh, the enjoyment. And yet um, 
the exhaustion of that is also very apparent. And, um, you know, that sense of looking for the joy, looking for like the joy in a community. And um, I would bet there's a lot of laughter sometimes in those groups, you know, and. and Yes. Yeah. You know, that it's not, it's not something we should feel guilty about. It's not the same as, you know, the world saying only seek pleasure and avoid pain and cast aside anybody else who looks like they're in pain. It's really not that at all. No, I, I agree, Sharon. I, in fact, I would say that deep joy and deep suffering are, are often two sides of the same coin. That it, if we're just trying to avoid um, a person a person, another person's pain, that doesn't really bring us joy. But when we enter fully into that other person's reality and we come to see the whole person and, and the, the, the part of that individual, as you said, who has, who, who can laugh and, and who can, not take themselves too seriously. There is just real joy. There's joy in that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I'm, I'm imagining like a range of feeling in a recovery group, the laughter, the um, relief, finding one another, maybe a lot of anger, a lot of grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, often a lot of loss has, you know, been experienced and uh, it just feels like everything. Yes. You know, um, definitely everything. Uh, there, there was um, in, in, in my uh, recovery circle, a woman recently um, lost her mother, her mother, died and she she shared you know i i always believed the narrative that if my mother died i would not be able to carry on i would not be able to continue this recovery journey that i'm on and that was what i believed but but she said now i realized that i i have this deep grounding and I have this place of being held by others. And I realized that that narrative is just not true that I am carrying on. And, and uh, there was just a lot of joy in her discovery of that. So right smack in the middle of her worst pain of losing her mother, there was this joy in the discovery that she had resources and the tools to access those resources and the support of others that she needed. And uh, we all laughed. I mean, we, I mean, we all were not laughed at her, but we laughed with her mm-hmm. at, uh, at the sort of rewriting of the narrative. Now, I'm curious in a way about how just mechanically how this works, because people 
can just drop in, right? But if you join a group, is it always the same group or do people move in and out? Um, we People can come into the community for the the meals and the the um classes and and the the gathering space uh, when you know pre covid and after covid um but but um the circles the recovery circles in order for people to be deeply known and loved in those circles we try to discourage much movement from one circle mm-hmm. to the other so that that, um, that deep bonding can take place and that deep knowing can take place. And what if a person um, slips and starts using something again um, and then they are clean for 24 hours or sober for 24 hours and and they come back um, because that's really in a way part of the most important principle of recovery, right? Is, is being welcomed back. You know? Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the things that touches me about our, our community is not only are people welcomed back, they are welcomed back and, and, and then we members of the community ask ask them tell us what you learned mm. tell us what you learned this through this recent experience um because your wisdom will help all of us so it far from shaming people we actually honor their experience It's really wonderful. And would you say that there's a, um, I don't know, I guess it's always different, but I'm wondering about if there's sort of a, a thread of a predominant emotion like anger or sadness that tends to run throughout, or is it just always changing? Well, I think everybody um, wrestles with different powerful emotions but some of the some of the ones that we uh experience a lot in in this journey this healing from trauma and most nine out of ten of our members have suffered some childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and so some of the um really strong emotions that we we experience a lot with people are anger and shame mm-hmm. and uh, fear and and um, even blame mm-hmm. um, and and again um, all of those emotions are are uh, they're, they're not bad they they just are uh, emotions that have to be worked with. They're not bad emotions. Yeah, one of the things I try to do in teaching meditation is suggest that 
if you're feeling anger or shame or, you know, jealousy or something like that, instead of calling those feelings bad or wrong or I'm a bad or weak person, uh, actually do a translation in your mind to this is a painful state, you know? Right, right. It really hurts. This is a lot of suffering being kind of locked into this. Yes, that that's what I mean by um, it, not judging, not judging the emotions, but but um, maybe even viewing them as a as a gateway to uh, the healing that is needed. Do you have a definition of compassion that you use? Hmm. I don't know that I have uh, one definition, but but I think of of compassion as just full acceptance. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we we are um, we live in a culture where we don't don't often encounter full acceptance. And and as a result, I think a lot of us don't fully accept ourselves. Very, uh-huh. we're not very good at fully accepting ourselves. So when I think of compassion for myself, um, which I is probably not my 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 strongest gift, <laughs> <laughs> it's where I struggle. But when I think of it, I I think of it as to to be fully accepted in just as I am. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I want to offer others to to fully accept others just as they are and not just to accept but to delight in others just as they are before they've made all the changes that they want to make or before they've gotten it all together um to to delight in people and ourselves just as we are, wherever we are on this journey. I guess that's what I would, I guess that's my definition of compassion. That's really beautiful. And, you know, of course, we have different um, experiences in life. Some people grew up in families where that actually was happening. And many, many people did not, or people are having um kind of the issues with society where society has declared them to be a dominant society has declared them to be unworthy or, you know, too different or uh, whatever it might be. And then, you know, there's just so many ways in which we don't generally speaking encounter that kind of acceptance and certainly don't incorporate it. You know, it's not reflected to us. And so we don't uh, build that resource inside of ourselves just naturally it takes i think a conscious intentionality of like i'm going to seek this change and i'm going to try these tools yeah and 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 what what i've discovered is if i'm um if someone is saying to me change 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 i i'm not as likely to to grow or change <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. but if, but if someone says, I delight in you just, just as you are before you change, then somehow that allows for the change to happen. 
It's a paradox. <laughs> One of many, but I think it's very true. So to close our conversation, I would love for you to lead us in some kind of practice. Oh, thank you, Sharon. Well, I, I could talk to you um, for hours. That went by so quickly. I know. Quickly. We'll have to do this again. I hate to say we'll Zoom, but, you know, we might. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate Zoom. I, um, well, I, the practice that I've been thinking a, a lot about lately, and it, it's kind of related to some of our conversation, is it's called the, the welcoming practice. It's uh, part of the contemplative tradition and um, and I, I don't know if you've ever taught with Cynthia Bourgeau or uh, no, I have not, but I know I know who she is. You know who she is. So um, her uh, contemplative society is uh, uh, probably the place where I I learned this practice, and it's very simple. You just, so I would invite anyone listening to, to, uh, to, uh, walk with, uh, with us in these steps. The, the first step is just to identify a feeling that you may be having or have had recently that, um, it could be any feeling. It could be, uh, uh, happy feeling or a, a sad feeling, a felt feeling that is causing you suffering. But um, identify that feeling and, and, uh, and try to identify where in the body, where in your body do you sense that feeling? Now, for some, that's really easy to do. And, but for me, that is something I, uh, I have not been really great at, and that is identifying the feelings in my body. But I, I'm learning. I'm learning that. Um, and then, once you identify that feeling, whatever it is, uh, intentionally welcome that sensation. Welcome that feeling. Um, may, uh, very intentionally say, welcome pain, welcome frustration, welcome anger that I'm sensing in my chest, or welcome the excitement that I'm sensing, and, and then sit with that. Just sit with that uh, feeling. And then... The third simple step is to surrender the feeling, to let go of the feeling. It um, we don't have to rush that, but but um, surrendering the feeling, as um, as Cynthia Bajot would would say, is it helps us to allow the feeling to pass and then gives us the opportunity 
to make a choice of what we would like to do, what right action would we like to take that that gave rise to that feeling. So for example, if the feeling is anger and we let go of it, then we're in a better place to determine what action do I want to take about that feeling than we than we are if we're still in the grip of it. Does that that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the what what uh what in the contemplative tradition uh the contemplative Christian tradition we would call the welcoming practice. That's really helpful. Um I have a, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who, in a kind of similar vein, calls it the handshake practice, you know, handshake that difficult emotion or that wonderful emotion that's arising and uh, welcome it into your house. Um, don't necessarily let it take over. That's not the point, you know, but uh, your awareness, your heartfulness is bigger, actually, than that emotion, however intense it might feel. And we have the capacity to uh, be very different with this whole range of feelings. So it was a a very nice um, expression of that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. And all of you, uh, thank you for listening. And to learn more about Killian's work with Recovery Cafe, you can visit www.recoverycafenetwork.org. This has been the Real Change Series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Thank you, Sharon. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com. <laughs>